0: We're at election overdose, and this is episode seven in season two, recorded on August the 18th, which means we're 74 days before the Big E. I'm Anshul Pfeffer, and with me is Dahlia Shendlin, coming to you from somewhere in Iranian. How's August treating you so far, Dalia?
1: It's fine. I feel like the little kid who is so excited for elections and just waiting for the citizens to wake up and be as excited as I am, and I'm not quite sure if they're awake yet.
0: Well the election campaign isn't stopping for August and we've had a fairly busy week so far in the aftermath of the big liquid primaries last week as well as the slightly less big Labour primaries last week and this week's main development or shall we say main character was of course Gaddy Eisenkot, the former IDF chief of staff who after many months of anticipation finally joined politics to some people's surprise he chose to do so with what is until Monday, still was blue and white, and as of this week, is the newly renamed National Unity Party. Now, before we discuss Eisencott's choice and the latest evolution in the party led by Benny Gantz, I know you, Dalia, want to inject just a slight tone of skepticism into the latest festival around yet another general arriving on the political scene.
1: Well, as usual, the news took over the headlines. All the political commentators were talking about it. Lots of speculation and a tiny little bump in the polls because that combined party of Benny Gantz and Gidon Saar was only polling at around 12 seats before. And now a couple of polls showed it getting 14 seats. But I have to say that we've seen this so many times before. So many generals who go into politics or ex-generals, I should say. And despite the image that generals do well, actually, it's a very, very tiny portion of them who actually get anything done in Israeli politics or even stick around. We can talk about Itzik Mordechai in the past, Amnon Lipkin Shachak, Bogia alone more recently. They, they go in with great fanfare. They rarely last very long. But there is an image that somebody with a military background can unite Israeli society, and they seem very credible. And in the end, once they get into politics... They lose the credibility and they get tainted by politics and they usually don't have a huge impact except for the very few who became, of course, political leaders. But we have to remember those are few and far between. What do you think, Anshul? Why did he go in with Gantz and Sar instead of Lapid? Well, first of all,
0: I'd like to disagree with you about whether or not the generals do well. Yes, many generals very quickly fail because they're not used to being in a situation where they're not surrounded with by dozens and or even hundreds of subordinates who have to scurry and carry out their orders immediately politics doesn't work like that but at the same time there there is a significant proportion of Israeli leaders who were who who arrived on the scene from from the IDF and had a very very quick and major impact rabin arrived from his job in the army very quick succession ambassador minister prime minister arik sharon and Ezra Weizmann both had a very important impact on making Likud into a party of power when they joined uh, El Barak, very short time, from in between when he left the army until he became prime minister. And even Benny Gantz, who's had a lot of ups and downs in the last three years in politics, for a short while was the leader of the largest party in the Likud, larger than Likud. And that wouldn't have happened if you know without his military resume. So I'd say that it's true that a lot of generals very quickly fizzle out on the political scene, but in those who have succeeded have succeeded in ways that civilians probably couldn't have.
1: Well, that's fair. And I would just make one quick interjection, which is that it's one thing for them to go in and then build their political career and then eventually rise up through the ranks of the party or even start towards the top of the party, but take their time getting to know the system. I think what was really remarkable was that Benny Gantz jumped in for the first time into politics as a candidate for prime minister. And that showed a kind of level of hubris about the importance and the assumption of success of generals in politics that we hadn't really seen before. Eisencott isn't quite doing that. He's just joining with fanfare. He's not running for prime minister. But we'll see if he manages to boost the party higher.
0: Eisenkott's choice of joining what was Benny Gantz's blue and white, and now, thanks to him, has been the name has been changed yet again to national unity. It's a surprise because, first of all, Eisencott is seen as being more to the left, and Benny Gantz's party has been sort of taken a bit to the right since the merger with, uh, with Gideon Saar, so there's that. There was also the feeling that he was almost already in agreement with Lapid that he would be joining Yeshotid, and to be honest, Heisenkorn is not a huge fan of Gantz, he replaced him as chief of staff. He was a lot more effective than him as chief of staff. I know that in the circle around Eisencott, people were quite dismissive of how Benny Gantz had been as a general. So there is quite a, it is a bit of a surprise, the fact that that he joined Eisencott. But what we've learned in the last few days is that Benny Gantz was prepared to give Eisencott a lot more influence. He was he basically said, okay, from the moment you join, we're starting to plan now the next primaries for the party. This party has never had primaries, of course, Gantz, and, his inner circle have decided who the candidates on the list will be. Now the party is, is scheduled six months after the election to, ha- to hold the primaries, both for the leadership and for, I'm assuming, the next candidates list. Lapid was less forthcoming. Lapid was willing to give got the second spot on the list. But I think the more that Eisenhower got to know Lapid, and obviously he spoke to people who had been in Yeshatid, including Ofer Sherach, who famously co-founded with Lepid, but um, as we all remember two years ago, fell out very noisily with him over the demand to hold a, a primary. So I think it, it's very clear that Eisenkopf wants more than just to be a leader, he wants influence over a large party. He also has a plan, and I think this is quite interesting to try and force Lapid to merge Yeshatid with Blue and White, or what is now National Unity, in the not too distant future. And I think one of the th- one of the reasons he joined Gantz is he wants to try and make that merger happen on a more equal state.
1: He wants to be like the bait who will who will bring Yeshatid back to merge with Benny Gantz, which we should remember. They were merged in the past, not with Gidon Tsar, but with each other. And also
0: it's worth remembering that back in the early 70s, when Ariel Sharon joined politics, he did a similar thing to Menachem Begin. He basically created a situation where Begin had to agree to merge what was then Cherut into a number of parties, what became Likud. And actually Likud was Sharon's creation. People don't remember that.
1: As we know, the history of Israeli parties merging or breaking up is strange and erratic because sometimes when they merge, Their next election cycles do give them fewer seats than they had in the outgoing Knesset separately. That's usually the case, but on occasion, if they manage to establish something that, you know, hangs together, they can do better. But I would say it's more common that when parties merge, they don't do as well. And it is interesting to watch how blue and white started out in a completely different iteration, of course, when Benny Gantz began. It was a small party known as Israeli Resilience, then merged with Yesh Atid and became Blue and White, then broke up and now has a new iteration constellation. We'll have to see if they have any incentive to get back together. And I'm not sure if Eisenkot is enough, to be honest.
0: Well, it's not necessarily always the matter of the number of seats they can get together, even if they get less seats together. Sometimes being one larger party gives in itself uh, more leverage sometimes being a small party at a very strategic point as was the case with naftali Yamina just over a year ago it also gives you a lot of power so it's not just a question of how many seats you win together or separately i think what eisenkot is trying to do here Eisenhower understands well at least not in the foreseeable future labor will never regain it's old position as a party of power. And he wants to create a party which can counterbalance Netanyahu's Likud. At the end of the day, Benny Gantz's party and Yair Lapid's party are not that distant from each other when it comes to actual policies. It's just the personalities which are clashing. Eisenkot I think, is trying to engineer at some point a, a merger of these parties perhaps as a technical block after, after the election, but he he has said in private to people that he doesn't believe that there's any justification for these two parties to to continue being separate entities.
1: In a way, it's a similar it's sort of an overlap with the next big thing that happened this week, which also has to do with parties trying to merge, not succeeding in merging, less because of ideological differences and more because of the terms they were trying to get regarding that merger. And of course, We're talking about Bezalos Motrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir. explain what happened there.
0: Well, these two gentlemen, Gentlemen. these two Jewish supremacists, in the polls are doing very well. Assuming they would run again as they did in the previous election in the the religious Zionism merged list of Jewish power and similar name to the new party, National Union.
1: Not to be confused with National Unity Party, the English translation of Gidon Tsar and Benny Gantz and Gadi Eisenkot's party. Very confusing.
0: We're not going to go into the, all the linguistic contortions here, but the Hamachaner Mamlahti, the new name for the Gantz-Sar Eisenkot party, is a bit of a problem for us who try to translate Hebrew terms into English. But anyway, National Union, not to be confused with national unity. That's One is Smotrich's party, the other one is Gantz and Eisencott's party, but they ran together last time, it was a, a joint list, we also have a party called the joint list, but it was <laughs> technically a joint list, and they did better than was expected and now in the polls they're expected to double the number of seats and go as high as 11 or 12 or even 13 seats in the next knesset and that's given both of the these men both both Smotrich and itamar Ben Gavir, a lot of appetite they both see an opportunity to, to bring into the new into the next Knesset it's a bunch of new mks who are their loyalists and if they're guaranteed each wants a, a larger share of the spots on the list and that's basically what this argument is about and as you said the ideologies between these two groups or these two parties are not vast they're pretty similar in their racist uh, nativist uh, chauvinistic etc uh, positions but they do serve different constituencies smotrich wants to bring in more people from the more established part of the religious zionism or the tilumi community while Ben gvir has his own people who are not necessarily part of, of Smoktrich's natural constituency.
1: Yeah, you've argued that they are serving a different population or somewhat different population. I question how much circulation there may be between those different populations. Or maybe that Ben as far you know, when I talk to certain voters on the right, I, I find that he has a certain appeal even among people who do not seem to be part of either of their traditional voters, just people on the right, not even necessarily very religious or maybe traditional, but... People who really hold a hardline attitude who are not turned off by that supremacist view. And I think the important thing to remember is, again, it does go back to some extent to what the polls are showing about their potential electoral strength, because together most polls are showing them getting between 10 and 11 seats. I think the idea that they would get 12 or 13 if they had stayed together was a hope. We hadn't quite seen that in the surveys, but it was certainly a possibility that they could grow. The other possibility, though, is quite the opposite, that if they split, which Ben this week said that he would run alone, but there's a long time to go before the list close on September 15th. You never know if something might change, but imagine they run separately as he announced this week. It could also be the case that one of them goes beneath the threshold because you can't count on what happens. The, the, the two parties still represent fairly limited communities. Those communities also have to make a choice between voting for small parties where they run the risk of wasting their vote or strengthening a big party like Likud. And so if one of them goes under, that's a lot of votes wasted.
0: Which is exactly the dilemma that the leaders of labor and merits have on the other side of the political spectrum. And what's interesting here is that a lot of journalists and political commentators are very skeptical. They say, no way, they will, they'll run together. This is just Bengvir flexing his muscles and trying to get a, a better share of the list. And they'll both settle and Netanyahu will force them to settle and so on.
1: Which I have to say, that was my reverse response to.
0: And it does make sense. But on the other hand, I am hearing increasingly from people close to both of them who are saying this is a real crisis because both of them are drunk on polls. And we can always always remember the famous Shimon Peres saying that polls are like perfume smell, but don't Don't drink drink
1: them. Aren't we all a little bit actually drunk on polls, though? I mean, I know I am, even even at this time of the morning.
0: This may be election overdose, but I've uh, I've gone cold turkey on polls for now. (laughs) But uh, they they both seem very full of themselves. they both seem very confident that they can that they can both cross the threshold. if they both cross the threshold, then it does make sense in many ways for them to run separately because that way they have their own party in the next Knesset, and there's no they don't have to take each other into consideration. It's quite and it's often better to be the leader of a small party which is loyal to you than to be co-leader of a larger party where you can't count on all the Knesset members. So there, there really are a number of reasons for them not to run together, though I agree it's if I had to put money in it, I'd still say the chances of them filing a joint list on uh, September the 15th is probably higher.
1: Yeah, I would just add one final thing that sort of a question that I'd like to raise and I don't really know the answer, but what typically happens in the Israeli very, very crowded and very fragmented party spectrum is that when a party exists that is perceived as to the far right or far left, Whichever one is right next to it, but you know, half a degree less extreme, takes on in the voters' minds a somewhat more moderate image. And so if Ben Gvir is considered the far extreme, and now he has the far extreme right, of course, and if he has his own party, I just wonder if the voters will start to normalize Smotrich, who has represented the far, far right-wing nationalist, religious, supremacist element of the political spectrum quite handily in the recent years on his own.
0: That's true, but on the other hand, Smokich does aspire to represent a wider community of religious Zionists or Datim Lumim, and many of that community are are much less right-wing than his, much less ultra-orthodox than he is. Part of the argument is that he wants to try and put one or two representatives of the slightly more moderate parts of his community onto his list so he can try and attract those voters. Now, whether it'll succeed or not is another matter. But that's another reason why he and Megwin may not end up running together, because Smoltysk has an incentive to put slightly more moderate candidates on his list. So what else happened this week? It's a quick rundown of a few perhaps minor things that we should still be paying attention to. The primaries in Likud are not yet quite over in the sense that there still are some allegations over various irregularities in some of the districts, and that's going to trouble Likud and Netanyahu over the next few weeks. It's also the question of the spots which are reserved for the party leader for Netanyahu that he can place there, who, whichever candidate he wants. He's got... A, currently two spots that he can use. Uh, there's also an appeal against that in the liquid internal court. But even if usually the internal court sides with the, with the leader in these things, even if he does have those reserve spots, there are increasing calls on Netanyahu not to put candidates in those spots and basically pull up the lower ranked candidates. And the reason for that is that there are only six women in the top 35 spots. And that's beginning to look, even to Likud just a bit unbalanced.
1: I think one of the interesting things I've noticed this week and most weeks is that Prime Minister Yair Lapid has been working hard to be perceived as a top statesman right in the beginning of his term, had the visit from President Biden. And this week, what we saw is the reopening of full diplomatic relations with Turkey. That's a big deal because they haven't had actually had ambassadors since about 2010. And I think that almost every week. He's trying to do something that shows that he is at the level of a top statesman. He's taking a page from Benjamin Netanyahu in that sense, in my opinion, because Netanyahu also tried to keep himself in the headlines week after week by showing what a great global statesman he was. What else, Angel?
0: Next week, next Tuesday on the 23rd, there are primaries also in religious Zionism. in mean, Smotrich is part of the what was the joint list on the far right. And there are primaries in merits, both for the candidate list and for the leadership. And Meretz is usually a party which keeps its arguments well within the inner circle. They don't launder dirty clothes out outside the party. And this has become, uh, I think, an increasingly toxic, uncharacteristically for Meretz, leadership battle between Yair Golan and former leaders Ahava Galaon. And Yair Golan came out this week with allegations that the party machinery is working against his candidacy. While from I'm not quite sure where they appeared from, their allegations against Golan that he's been trying to bring in basically fake members or members who don't even know their members, new members of merit who have been what's called in Hebrew "mishkad al gazim eh? How how would you say "mishkad al gazim
1: Manufactured members. I don't. I mean, there's no good term for it, but basically, vote contractors who are kind of there to harvest votes uh, or or people harvest membership running around their communities who may be paid to do it in some sort of illegitimate way. So this is the
0: kind of thing you wouldn't normally associate with merits, but this is happening I think because Yagolan realizes that the Zevagalon is making a comeback which is almost inevitable from everything we're seeing she'll be overwhelmingly reelected or returned to to the leadership and Yagolan who is another ex-general who doesn't seem to be doing extremely well in politics is obviously very frustrated. At uh, what looks like uh, an impending defeat.
1: The next thing I've been watching this week is Amir Ohana, who is number six on the Likud list. And he's been laying out his vision for a while, but he keeps kind of stepping up the pace of talking about all the things he's going to do to change. That's one way of putting it. Change the Israeli judiciary. He claims he doesn't want to destroy it. He just wants to fix it. But the steps that he's been talking about for a long time are, first of all, to pass an override law so that the Knesset can overrule Supreme Court ruling, increase the political control, the control of Knesset members over judicial appointments, limit the authority of the attorney general and the state prosecutor. Again, he says he's not trying to destroy it, but repair it. And while I agree that all systems of authority could use reform and can be criticized and improved, I think we've seen over the last number of years that Likud, and particularly someone like Ohana, is primarily out to limit the independence of the judiciary and increase political control. You can call it what you want, but that's going to be the ultimate impact. There is going to be a less independent judiciary in Israel if he's able to do those plans. And with
0: that, on to our guest.
1: (laughs) And now introducing our main topic of the week. While elections are still a little bit sleepy, there's one thing that every single Israeli is talking about all the time. And that's the cost of living, high cost of housing, fear that in the future people will never be able to make the cost of living or buy an apartment here. And usually parties do actually have some sort of campaign on economic themes. All the parties from like Shas to the guy once known as Mr. Economy, and that would be Netanyahu. But the fact is that in my analysis, these issues hardly ever become the decisive factor in elections or even in Israeli political life, at least in the last couple of decades. So the paradox for today's episode is why do Israelis consistently rank economic concerns, social economic gaps, the cost of living? as far and away their top concern, but they barely seem to vote or divide themselves over this issue. Why is it so different from the U.S. and other Western European countries? And this time, global developments are pushing the cost of living through the roof with energy and food prices rising. Will it be any different? Certain politicians have been talking about more or less vague proposals, including Naama Lazimi, who won the top spot in labor. She has a long kind of economic analysis about what she proposes. Finance Minister Avigdor Lieberman has made some general promises. Netanyahu, we discussed his economic plan in detail last time. They all seem to be promising the same thing. Let's lower costs to the consumers, and the only difference is how. Anshul, I want to start by asking you, why do you think it's not so much about the economy?
0: It's not about the economy because Israelis feel that, even though, obviously, their bank accounts and their co- and their cost of living and their prospects of ever owning their own homes are all major con- are all the most major concerns for them, on a more collective level, and this is the level in which we go and vote, we, we vote as part of a community, as part of a nation, we still see ourselves as a country which at some level is uh, still fighting an existential struggle for our very survival and i think israelis even though israel hasn't fought a war like that probably since 1973 so almost 50 years israelis still have that kind of collective feeling and the other thing is that you said in other countries in, in, in in real democracies people do vote according to their economic concerns. I think that's less and less true also in, in quite a few Western democracies nowadays, that voting is more and more tribal. And in, in that sense, Israelis, I think, were ahead of the curve. I think the other reason is that for many years now, there hasn't really been within Israeli politics a real debate or any real divide over economic policy, probably not since the, the big economic plan in 1985, when both Labour and Liquid agreed on uh, what was called then the package deal, which uh, was also something, uh, it, I mean, it was a whole major program to bring down inflation and so on, and the was, IMF was involved. And ever since then, really, there hasn't been that much of a real economic debate in Israel. So. Even though people are are very much concerned about, about their own personal finances, it isn't really a consideration when you come and vote.
1: Okay, well, to help us figure this out, we are delighted to have with us here in the studio Professor Karnit Flug. She is the former governor of the Bank of Israel. She's currently at the Israel Democracy Institute, where she is vice president of research and the William Davidson Senior Fellow for Economic Policy and a professor at Hebrew University. Karnit, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. As we know, Israelis are desperately trying to cope with cost of living. The Economist Intelligence Unit ranked Tel Aviv the most expensive city in the world. But of course, the problem is not only in Tel Aviv. What are the unique elements of the cost of living in Israel, which some of them, many of them predated the cost spikes around the world that we're seeing because of Corona and the war in Ukraine, such as rising energy costs and supply chain problems, but we know that the housing and consumer cost problem has been with us for a very long time. What is going on in general before we get into the politics of it?
2: First of all, I want to say that the fact that the economists uh, ranked Tel Aviv as the most expensive city, it's very much true from the perspective of someone who comes from abroad, who earns in dollars and have to buy very expensive shekels in order to consume in Tel Aviv. However, those who earn in shekels and their earning have actually gone up in real terms. The situation did not deteriorate. And if we look at the last 10 years, actually, the real purchasing power of Israeli wages went up by 25%. So our standard of living did go up. It's true that when we compare the cost of, milky or cottages in Europe. And here it seems very expensive, but we come with our very strong shekels and buy relatively cheaper euros. So basically, I think we have to sort of correct some misperception. Having said all of that, it's true that in some areas, Israel is very expensive and housing prices that you mentioned have gone up dramatically, and it does make it much harder
1: for young Israelis to buy their own homes. And what's your perception? Do you think that the parties are offering people distinctly different platforms if we just look closely enough? Or actually, they're all kind of within the same general range. We're just going to try to lower costs. We just have slightly different ways of doing it.
2: I haven't seen any coherent economic (laughs) plan presented by any party. It's not uh, a new I think everybody knows what the main problems are, and they all promise to tackle them in different ways. But I haven't seen a a plan which is not only promising a lot of things, but also explaining how you will be financed, all these good things. So we've seen recently a plan by Delhi Kud to offer free... Free everything, basically. Free, yeah, and childcare. I mean, for infants ages zero to three. The cost of doing that on a universal basis is something like 12 billion shekels. I'm not sure that would be the first thing to do with additional 12 billions, but that's another, uh, I mean, that's beside the story. I haven't seen what will be the resources to actually finance it because in the same plan there is an, also an intention to reduce taxes. So I would say generally that uh, there are some examples of some discussion of how to deal with things, but not in a way that really is uh, consistent with, you know, the reality that if you promise things that cost
1: a lot, you need to bring the resources for that. One quick point on that, Naama Lazimi wrote a long post. It was a detailed post, and she had a very clear argument for how she would raise the money to do all of the social investment she wants, and that's to raise the debt-to-GDP ratio. Is that a normal, rational thing to, is that a a legitimate thing to propose?
2: I don't think that Israel can afford to have a much higher debt-to-GDP ratio over a long period of time, because I think that Given that we are a shock-prone economy, sometimes there are external shocks that hit us, sometimes there are domestic shocks that hit us. We have to be able to deal with those, and if it's needed, to increase very dramatically the spending of the government, and the only way you have the freedom to do that is if you have a responsible macroeconomic policy and fiscal policy before that, and if your debt-to-GDP ratio is considered reasonable and manageable. I think we were very, I wanted to say, lucky, but it wasn't luck. It was really the fruits of a long Term effort to reduce the debt-to-GDP ratio before the latest crisis, the corona crisis, where we actually came to the crisis with a debt-to-GDP ratio of 60%, and that allowed the government to spend huge amounts without any problems and to really reduce the cost, the economic cost, the cost in terms of uh, human suffering during the COVID crisis. And uh, as a result of the high spending at that time, the debt-to-GDP r- ratio rose again to over 70%, and now it's slowly moving down. So I think in order to have the fiscal space to respond to shocks, we have to have a reasonable, manageable debt-to-GDP ratio. So I think it's a
1: very bad idea. And Israel, we should say, did make a pretty good economic recovery with 8% growth average last year, low unemployment. Anshol, I know that you have some skepticism about the question of whether political leaders have any credibility on whether they can influence economic life in Israel. Can you tell us about that? Well, I think
0: uh, Professor Flug is a very uh, important source on on this because a lot of people both in the Israeli business community and foreign business people and investors and economists who come here are of the opinion that the government isn't actually that much involved in in economic policy, that the Bank of Israel, which does have a very high degree of independence, is there to set monetary policies and interest rates and so on. And then Israel does have a very strong private sector. And they're the ones who are really making the economic weather, whereas the governments are sort of almost bystanders. And I'm really interested in in what Professor Flug thinks about that.
1: Professor Flug, we should say, is smiling and making some interesting faces here. So I'm curious, too. (laughs) Well, I, I'm not
2: sure I would say by standards, but I first of all I agree with I think what was said before is that there are not huge differences between the different governments in terms of economic policies. I think generally and it's related to the political instability. I think governments in Israel are more short-sighted than in other places because they think about the short term because they don't know how long their government is going to last. And so they tend to avoid actually undertaking major reforms where the fruits are being actually born only in the longer run. Having said that, I think that uh, the last government did actually try to introduce several reforms, maybe reform is a big word, but uh, several steps in order to reduce the cost of living and enhance competition. And when the last budget was presented, there was also the arrangements law, which included reform in the agricultural sector, basically opening the agricultural products for imports and replacing it with this direct support for the farmers, there was some reduction in tariffs. There was a decision of adopting international standards instead of very specific Israeli standards that nobody understands. Basically, a form why of protectionism, ex- right? exactly. But most of these
0: reforms, at the end of the day, are things that the treasury, civil servants, the budget, you know, the, the all-powerful budget department wanted to happen. The things that they've been they've been pushing for a long time and basically a minister comes in and he has these reforms already on the table prepared for by the once again by the budget department representative in his or her ministry it's not like there is a real policy making initiative coming from the elected politicians 90 percent of israeli economic policy is made either by the civil servants in in the department in the budget department or by People, uh, your former team in the Bank of Israel, the politicians aren't really on the scene when it comes to economic policies.
1: I just want to add to that question. Could the opposite be true that there are politicians who make non decisions by saying, okay, we know those are the policies being proposed, but we don't want to do them? Again, it's somehow related to the very short terms
2: that ministers have in each ministry, generally speaking. And it's true that they, in the Ministry of Finance, it's a strong ministry with a strong professional tradition. And in their drawers, they have a lot of uh, reforms that they are always on the look for an opportunity to actually bring them out. But I also think that given that the ministers know that they're there for a short time It's very hard to actually start major reforms, deal with all the interest groups that you have to overcome in the process of actually getting to start implementing. And in many times, you won't even be at the very earliest stages of implementation before you leave the ministry. So I think there are strong incentives against actually undertaking major reforms. And that's very unfortunate, I think, that's one of the prices we pay for the political instability in Israel.
0: Can I just ask you a personal question? Since you're an expert on economics and like everyone else, you're going to be voting on November the 1st, I'm not going to ask you obviously which party you vote for, but... Do you, as an expert on on these matters, even look at the party's economic plans, or you have other reasons to vote for? Because you know how these economic plans are not really important, and they probably won't be acted upon.
2: Yeah, I don't look at their economic plans. The ones, <laughs> even without looking, I, I see them. You know, in the papers, and I see that, as I, I gave the example, they promise things that some of them are more reasonable than others, but they cost huge sums of money. And if they're not willing to actually present what will be the source of financing, I think they're not worth the paper that they're written
1: on. I have another question about how the voters look at it, since you're such a great representation of the Israeli voters on this. Do you think that there are misunderstandings and misrepresentations of economic themes in the political system? Oh, definitely. Oh, and like
2: actually what? we can give the one of the recent examples was the huge discussion of the price of bread that is within the control. There are few prices here that are controlled by the government. The standard bread is one of these, but nobody, almost nobody, consumes any of this bread. Actually, the lowest income bracket spends 13 shekels a month on this bread. They spend much more on pitas and other uh, breads that the prices of which are not controlled, and they went up anyway. So, the huge discussion about this uh, rise in the price of bread that almost nobody spends nothing on was really uh, just an example of how populist sometimes the discussion is, and there are many other examples. And as I mentioned before, I mean, we talk a lot about the cost of living, and I think to some extent it's based on misrepresentation of facts. Cost of living in terms of housing services is
1: high. But is that true for everyone, or, or does that average growth hide within it major gaps between the wealthiest and the poorest. The fact is that when
2: we look at the 10-year period or five-year period, the inflation was much lower than the growth of wages. So real wages did go up. The Bureau of Statistics also checks what happens to the prices of uh, the basket for different earning brackets. And they actually went up by very similar percentage. So there is no difference in that respect. And uh, when we look at, again, over a longer period of time, at what happened to the earnings of the different income brackets, actually there was some narrowing of the gaps.
1: Perception and reality, that's politics. I do look at the numbers,
0: I think that we have a headline that the former governor of the Bank of Israel does not look at the party's economic plans when she goes and votes. So thank you very much, (laughs) Professor Canning, for for joining us today. You're
2: very welcome. Thank you. Thank you.
0: So enough talk about economics. Let's go on something a lot more entertaining. What time is it?
1: It's party time, which I love. Everybody knows how much I love party time. And this week, the party animal is pretty obvious. There's only one party out there that really deals with the economy as its main issue, with trying to rise above national or nationalist political divides and talk about things we all care about, better economic life. Anshul, you know which party I mean, right?
0: I have to admit, I don't have a clue.
1: But there is only one party dealing with economic issues in Israel, and that would be Professor Yaron Zalicha's The New Economy Party, which ran in the last elections and got a respectable number of nearly 35,000 votes. But that's not enough, of course. It was just 0.8%, far from 3.25%, which is the threshold. He's running again. I'm sure we're all relieved to
0: hear that. The reason I said that I, I, that I have no idea is that, as far as I'm concerned, this is not a party. This is one egotistical, I'm biting my tongue here, not to use the word I want to use about Yaron Zalikha, who thinks that just because his name is Professor Zalikha, people will fall over themselves in the, in the voting booths to, to vote for him. That hasn't happened. It won't happen. It's not a party. It's just an ego trip of Professor Zalikha. So you want to call it a party, go ahead, it's your party.
1: Okay, well, luckily, Party Animal is a section about far more esoteric parties than someone like Yaron Zalicha, And I'm going to talk about the two parties with the most creative ideas for resolving Israel's economic woes. In 1984, we had a guy called Yaakov Berger who started a party called Hasmas. What do you think he stood for with that kind of name, Anshul? Can you guess?
0: I'm assuming he didn't like paying his taxes.
1: Exactly. How'd you know? The actual full name of his party was called the Movement for the Cancellation of Income Tax, a single issue party. And they did get 1,472 votes. That's impressive. But then there's my personal favorite, the guy who really tried to change, revolutionize the Israeli economy. And that was in 1999 when Ezra Tisuna founded the Casino Party. He began as a backgammon champion in the 1970s before moving on. To manage a casino cruise ship, he was suspected of drug charges in the U.S. too. But then he decided to come back to Israel and start this party. And his vision was that legalizing casinos in Israel would save the economy. It would create jobs, tourism, income, increase the state budget, income tax, all that stuff. He was kind of strange, but he got over 6,500 votes when he first ran in 1999. And all of this just goes to show that there's no lack of great ideas for improving the Israeli economy. But when all is said and done... These parties never get in, and we're all just left struggling to make the price of a cup of coffee.
0: I'd gamble that uh, none of these parties, not, and certainly not Professor Zalicha, will get in this time either. And I'd also put some money on the fact that at the end of the day, economics will not be the main issue of this election either.
1: And they so rarely are.
0: Perhaps when we when we record the the last episode after the election, I'll have to eat my hands.
1: <laughs> One never knows.
0: And that's it for this episode of Haaretz Election Overdose. We hope you've got your weekly fix and that will last you for an extra week as Dalia and I are taking a short, unearned summer break, even though the election campaign never goes on vacation. You're Dalia Shendlin, I'm Anchor Pfeffer, our producers are Shania Aviram and Maya Benisan. Thanks once again to our extra special guest, Professor Koenig Flug. And until the next time, dear listener, assuming we make it to the end of August, Have a great holiday and see you back soon.